everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you after our forced break due to the floodwaters here that uh, thankfully have pretty much dried up by now. We've got our dehumidifier going full time. Um, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome to the program Thomas R. Gailey, author of the fascinating, I think really important book, America's Post-Christian Apocalypse, published recently, September 2015, which has the intriguing subtitle, How Secular Modernism Marginalized Christianity and the Peril of Leaving God Behind at the End of the Age. And as I said, I think it is an excellent book. It's not a quick read. It is, in fact, 562 pages long, so it uh, does take quite a few sittings to get through. But it is absolutely worth the effort, and it's absolutely worth the price, which isn't really that much, you know, given the significant amount of research uh, that clearly went into this and the quality of the writing. So I do highly recommend people to get a copy of this book. Anyway, we'll get into more about uh, the detail of this in just a moment. So let me uh, welcome you, Tom, to The Mind Renewed. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Oh, thanks for having me, Julian. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be speaking with you. I really did enjoy reading this book. As I said to you before the interview got going, um, you know, as with pretty much anything you ever read, I, I didn't agree with 100%, but uh, you'll be pleased to know I sort of agreed with about 99%. So <laughs> that's pretty good. Going. That's great. Um, I said in your, the uh, email to you that uh, your writing very much reminded me of the writings of Francis Schaeffer, the theologian and cultural analyst. And uh, I think... You know, the nature of the project itself, where you're assessing the culture of our times and you know, seeking to understand that by tracing various philosophical, theological, sociological, historical strands that sort of all conspired to lead us to where we are today. That was obviously very Schaeferian, but also because of your style. You, you seem to have this great ability, rather like Schaefer actually had, to you know, paint with a very broad brush and summarise a huge amount of data in a way that makes it easy for us to take in. So, you know, thank you for writing the book and thanks for doing it in that kind of way. But could we start, before getting into the detail of it, by you know, finding out a little bit more about you? Could you give us an idea of your background, you know, and, uh, you know, why it is you came to write a book as massive and as detailed as this? Um, well, basically, I recommitted my life to Christ when I was around 27 and that's all I knew was one thing. I, after about a year, I got really hungry to learn. So I went off to seminary. I think I was around 30. And um, I didn't really have any idea that I was going to go into the ministry, per se, because I'm just a pretty regular guy. But I was just so hungry to learn. So I went to seminary and took basically philosophy, religion is what I got my master's degree in, and a lot of apologetic courses and things like that. And even then, I remember my dad came out to visit me one time, and he said, Tom, what are you going to do with this? I said, I said, I really don't know. I said, I just know I, I've got to learn. But during that time, it would just pop into my head, you know, maybe you should write. And I just kept dismissing it because I thought, well, I'm not a writer. But after about two or three years, I kind of thought, well, maybe I will write something someday. And after I got my master's degree, I just kept studying, and I studied enlightenment philosophy and how it interfaced with Christianity and then a thesis started to form in my head, and um, the rest, of they say, is history. I, that's how I came to write the book. Mm -hmm. So you say Enlightenment philosophy interest. So this is the philosophy, of European philosophy of sort of 17th, 18th century, that sort of time. Yes, yes, that's mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So did you get into that study always considering it from the point of view of Christian apologetics, how Enlightenment thinking impacted Christianity, or was it just a, an independent interest of yours? Um, no. Most of the books I read were had a Christian bent to them, and so they would explain how how the Enlightenment interfaced with Christianity. I think the other thing, I remember watching a television program where they would have um, – Christianity was just lambasted on the program. Like this was in the 90s, and I thought, how – when did this become okay to happen? It just really took me by surprise. And then when I'm reading this Enlightenment stuff, and I'm thinking, my gosh, the stuff that is going on today in our culture, the thinking that's going on today, you can trace this all the way back to the Enlightenment. I guess that's really how the book came to be because – you could just trace this back that the ideas and the political correctness that we have in our culture today didn't just pop up out of thin air, that you can trace it all the way back to the Enlightenment period. Yeah, and uh, I mentioned Francis Schaeffer's writings. Did they actually have much of an impact upon you? Yeah. Yeah, I read um, quite a few of his books, um, but especially I think The God Who Is There, um, which I love that expression. I would have thought of that myself. I did use it, I think, a couple times in my book. <laughs> C.S. Lewis, somewhat, Schaeffer, and then just other cultural critics is what I was reading, basically. But I, I liked Schaefer's writing style because he could put ideas forth simply, but he did it with grace. He didn't have a polemic style, and I kind of liked that. So, yeah, it did definitely have an influence on me. Mm. And I'm getting the impression that this research has been going on a very long time. Am I right in thinking that it's been, well, over 10 years of work have gone into this book? Yeah. Actually, off and on, I mean, I've had to work, but I would say 20 off and on because I I got my master's degree in 94 and I kept studying and that's when I was starting to study up on the enlightenment philosophy and things. So say 94 until, you know, the book came out last year. So it wasn't every single year because some years I barely got anything done on it. But all that time I was studying pretty much the bibliography in the back. I haven't looked through every single book, but I would say probably at least 85 to 90 to 95 percent of those books I read cover to cover. Wow. You know yourself, it takes a long time to read books. You can't just go plowing through everything <laughs> and, and you've got to, you know, you've got to extract all that information. You've got to organize all the information. Like you said, it's 562 pages. Just so people don't get thrown off, I think it's about maybe 400 of text, but I do have like 45 pages of endnotes. So yes, that's true. I've got like, yeah. yeah. So yeah. um, that was quite a relief, actually, in a yeah, sense. Exactly. I thought, wow, how am I going to get through this? And then I got to about 80% of the way through, and I thought, oh, I'm almost at the end, though. <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, when you have taken so much, clearly so much learning there over so many years. And, you know, that could be quite off-putting for people to think, well, I don't want to read a book that's going to be so academic. But actually, it doesn't come over that way. I think you've, rather like Schaefer, you've very successfully condensed a lot of what you have learned there made it approachable for people. So I don't think people should be put off by it at all. I think a lot of what you say there is actually not just interesting. I think it's actually really important. And I think that will come out um, as we discuss today and indeed in our next interview, because I've already, we've already agreed that we're going to need um, a couple of interviews to cover the amount of things that you talk about. So it's going to be quite a, a long process having a look at this book. Um, but let's start with the main thesis of your work because so much of it branches out into the various discussions we can have from there and right at the beginning of chapter one you say it like this you say the thesis of america's post-christian apocalypse is that over the past century and a half secular modernism stroke postmodernism has increasingly replaced christianity as the hegemonic authority in our society 
Now, I'm going to say that again because it's quite a mouthful. So, everybody, ready? (laughs) Here it comes again. The thesis of America's post-Christian apocalypse is that over the past century and a half, secular modernism, stroke postmodernism, has increasingly replaced Christianity as the hegemonic authority in our society. Now, how would you basically explain, summarize that thesis to somebody who didn't perhaps know those terms very well? Well, secular has to do, people think it's, it's always secular versus sacred. I mean, it's not just that. Secular comes from like the Latin seculum, which has to do with time or age. So a lot of the times when I use secular in the book, it has to do with somebody who would be secular would be somebody who's completely time bound. Somebody who's a, totally a child of this age. They have no vision of eternity anymore. Their only concern is the here and now. And I really think that is the case today. People do not think about God or eternity anymore. They only think about the here and now. Secularization would be the historical process of secularism being carried out in society. And it's the notion that there's a loss of authority of religion and otherworldly concerns. And again, it's this idea of, of only focusing on this world alone. And it's the process by which sectors of society are removed from the influence of religious beliefs or religious institutions. Um, as far as modernism goes, it's closely related to the secular. It literally means, it comes from Latin and modernist, meaning just now. So you can see there's a similarity between the secular, um, which is this present age, and modernity, which is just now. Would you say that there is also an element of the up-to-dateness about modernism? So you have the secular, which is the here and now, but modernism would be here and now, but we're now the best we've ever been. Um, yeah, definitely. Because, well, look at John Dewey. He said basically one of the four criterion that he would have was um, that it's an experimental study of nature in order to gain technology for social progress. So, yes, it's this um, progress plays a big factor in definition of, say, modernism. The two are tied together. Definitely, it's an unbridled belief in progress. I guess that would be the more fall under the definition of modernism, like you said. And this brings us back to what you were talking about, this uh, interest you have in the Enlightenment, because people talk about the Enlightenment project, don't they? Yes. And uh, that seems to be pretty much like that, the secularization of things and thinking that the modern is always the best and we're always improving. So I can see how that very much connects with your your interest in that area of philosophy. Um, Okay, what about post modernism that's a term which confuses a lot of people really it's a bit of an odd one it seems like a contradiction in terms but it isn't obviously how would you explain that to people well postmodernism was basically that it was a rejection of the enlightenment project um so it's a criticism of, of western modernism everything that's been written in the last 20 years always talks about postmodernism and i think it's that term is overused and i said that in my book but i think the one place where it's not is the loss of the notion of truth. Mm. Um, We don't have a correspondence theory of truth anymore. We think truth is pragmatic. It's whatever works for me. You've heard the expression, oh, it works for me. A lot of what I think the problem with postmodernism is it's really autonomy. And, And that's a lot of the thesis of my book is that we become autonomous. There was these philosophers like Foucault and Bart and Derrida and Basically, they tried to undermine reality. They said it's basically you interpret reality, you interpret a text if you read it. It's not about the author's intent anymore. It's about how the reader interprets it. 
So it's basically an autonomy of I call it this. It's autonomy of hermeneutics. It's it's autonomy of interpretation. Now it's not about what the author intended when he writes something to you. It's how you want to interpret it. Well, I mean, it's just ridiculous. If you can interpret anything how you want to, again, it ties right in with truth. You've lost the notion of truth because you, how are you going to communicate truth if the person can read it, what you say and what you intend, however they want? Yes, you know, I totally agree with you. This sort of radical postmodernism turns me off completely. I do, however, think that some people are completely down on postmodernism and think it's just a kind of an evil word. And yet, actually, there are some aspects of it which can be quite useful. You know, speaking from a position of faith here, one can use some of the insights of postmodernism to critique modernism, which we've already said the postmodernism is, you know, is a rejection of much of modernism. We can use that and say, well, the general narrative about progress and technology will save us, etc. We can deconstruct that and say, well, you know, that really doesn't hold water. So, you know, I think to some extent, it's both an ally to us and also a foe to us. And it depends upon which author you're looking at and how extreme it's taken. But I think what's really interesting about this is that we have here modernism and postmodernism that you identify as being together somehow, this hegemonic authority that's replaced Christianity. And one of the things which Bill Craig says, William Lane Craig, who we talked about um, earlier before the interview, he says that in some aspects of our culture, we are still modernists. In fact, in most of it, he thinks. So in science, for example, we, we still believe in truth. You know, you don't, you don't drink that poison that's on the shelf because you know it's going to kill you. It's not open to interpretation. I agree. But in other areas, such as morality and, and religion, well, we, we, we tend towards, you know, radical postmodernism. Well, it depends what you think. It's just a matter of opinion, etc. There's no, no real truth, but it's true for me. It's, that's true for you. This is true for me, etc. So we have this strange ambivalence going on in the culture. But you in this sentence put both of them together and you say both together have replaced Christianity as this hegemonic authority. So this is an authority that covers everything. What's going on there? How does it express itself as an authority over the whole society? Well, enlightenment, things were still objectively true. So like philosophers, when they disagreed with Christianity, they did it because they thought it was objectively false. Postmodernism today says Christianity, we don't know if it's true or not, but it's intolerant. As far as how it plays out today, the fruit of enlightenment I call uh, politically correct pluralism, which is the notion that just because there's a whole bunch of different religious belief systems, that's fine. That's just pluralism. Call it religious pluralism. There's no problem there. But what I call politically correct pluralism is that it takes it a step further. It says because all of these religious belief systems exist, they're somehow all true. That's the politically correct part of it. And it is absolutely not true because, for example, secular humanism was declared a religion over here in 1961. Now, secular humanism is basically atheism, and that's a religion. Christianity is considered religion. How can they both be true? One says God exists. One says God does not exist. They can't both be true. Yeah. But in our politically correct pluralism, people in a culture would say, well, you know, all roads lead to God. All religions are true. Well, they can't all logically be true. So that's why I call it politically correct pluralism. Um, you have autonomy and, and loss of Christian authority, which are the two other fruits. Christianity has lost its authority since the Enlightenment period, especially it's accelerated, uh, well, it's accelerated since the countercultural revolution. But even since Darwin, that's accelerated. And then you have autonomy, which is everybody wants to be a law unto themselves. So um, that's that part. As far as the um, fruit of postmodernism, I think you have relativism and then the loss of truth um, and then politically correct tolerance. 
which is it's one thing to tolerate different belief systems in your culture, but now we think that you know they have to be accepted unconditionally as if they're true. And I think that stems from moral relativism. You know, anything goes nowadays. And so now it's not just a matter of tolerating them. You have to put your stamp of approval on them. You've got to put your imprimatur on them. And I just don't think that is the way to go because it it goes against truth. You know, it goes against objective morals. So those is what I would say are the the fruit of secularization and fruit of postmodernism. You have an, a really good paragraph here, which I would like to quote from, where you talk about this idea that truth is relative, and you point out just how irrational it is by showing it, it refutes itself. Let me just quote from you. Uh, quote, the phrase truth is relative is meant to apply to everyone. But wait a minute. If truth really is relative, then that statement is not true. It is relative. Look at it another way. If that statement, truth is relative is really relative, then there is no reason to pay attention to it because it may not apply to me, because it's relative. How can truth be relative and at the same time apply to me and everyone else? But worse than that, how can truth is relative be true and relative at the same time? It cannot. But if the statement truth is relative is not true, then truth is not relative and therefore that statement is false Therefore, there is no reason to pay any attention to it. I love the way, I love the way you work through that. In fact, it, that reminds me a bit of Alvin Plantinga, actually, yeah. the, where he plays with things like that. Um, I had a hard yeah, time with that. I try went over that and over and over it because I look, I don't, I didn't want the book to be technical, and so I don't want to give people the impression it is. I only do that a few no. times, as you know. But it's so important. I mean, it's one of the most important things that we've got to get this notion of truth right. And this notion that is just bandied about today, that truth is relative, you've got to be able to dismantle things like that, you know? Yeah. And so I tried to do the best I could, you know, just logically and and so it was still understandable. <laughs> yeah, I had to quote it because it jumped out at me so much. And I do agree it's a bit convoluted, but if you read it carefully, it's uh, it's, it's it's very clear and also it's quite amusing. As I you know, I couldn't help but chuckle as I was reading. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah. Good. I'm glad you appreciated that. <laughs> you know, relativism always slits its own throat. That's the thing. It, it can't get out the gate because as soon as you say something's relative, then it, it, it's self-contradictory. It's self-stultifying, and it just slits its throat and dies on the ground right there, right in front of you. So that's what I was trying to get at, but I had to, you know, you had to use some logic there. Yeah, and yet this notion has taken root so much. Yes. And we, we're going to look um, in a little while at some of the, the reasons why that might have happened, some of the intellectual trends that have taken place that have kind of given credence to this way of looking at the world. But you, you know, you said that one of the fruits of this is this political correctness where people are so concerned about not upsetting each other that they will not address this refutation that you just brought up. You know, um, if one view is a contradiction to another, they don't say that because it will offend. And yet they have to quite radically hold that contradiction in the back of their minds without addressing it, which is, you know, a curious situation. But we have here now, it seems to me, a kind of escalation of this political correctness going on. I mean, for years, it's been talked about as something that's just chucklesome, you know, oh, everything's so PC these days. It's become almost a kind of liberal tyranny. And it's hegemonic. We're seeing this particularly now. I mean, just very recently, the um, Oxford University Student Union has had this vote, a non-binding vote, to remove the statue of Cecil Rhodes from Oriel College. 
Now, I'm no fan of Cecil Rhodes, but the, the idea of removing that because it might offend people because, you know, of his sort of racist views or, you know, as an imperialist and all this. Well, so what? I mean, this seems to me anyway to, you know, invite some education that people understand who he was and his, his faults, but not to remove history. This seems to me to be a really unhealthy way to go. And in fact, Chris Patton, the university chancellor, said that the students, he said, uh, who have this views, he said, this is his quote, should think about being educated elsewhere. Yeah, <laughs> right. you know, I agree, because you can't rewrite history. And that seems to be the kind of impetus that's going on here. I think it's very unhealthy. Well, you know what it is, too? I mean, if you don't have shared values... What do shared values have to be based around? It'd be based around what you think is truth, what you think is important in your society. And it always stems back to morals. So if you have a bunch of autonomous people, which is basically what we have, okay, because again, that's that's one of the fruit of the secularization process. Everybody wants to be autonomous. It starts breaking down society because if you can't decide what truth is anymore, and truth is just relative to each individual, you have no more basis for society. So, see, that's already happening with the example you just gave, okay? How is society going to survive if there's no common values, everyone's autonomous, everyone's along to themselves? You are and the, st- only, the only value is don't upset each other. That's about it, really. Well, then it goes to politically correct tolerance. There you go. See, all these things, are, it's just a rat's nest of things that it has a synergistic effect. It just, they all reinforce each other. Once you have the loss of truth, well, then you have relativism. Once you have relativism, you have moral relativism. Once you have moral relativism, you've got to put your stamp of approval on it. Well, then you have politically correct tolerance. You've got to tolerate everything. All these, what I call the fruit of the secularization process, they all reinforce each other. But then again, it becomes self-refuting because one thing you cannot tolerate is the person who says, I don't think this radical tolerance is a good idea. Exactly. Don't tolerate that idea. So it, it's actually incoherent. No, that's right. As Christianity becomes marginalized... Everything seems to be tolerated except Christianity. And why? Because Christians actually believe things are true, that they're objectively real, like God really exists. It's not just something I made up. People don't want to hear that. It really, a lot of it goes back to autonomy. Yes. Could you expand a little bit upon that notion of autonomy there? Because you have used that word a number of times. Well, it's literally, it's autonomous. I mean, auto, self, nomos, law. You're a law unto yourself. You're not making yourself accountable to God. Mm. It's the same with Adam and Eve. They did not want to be accountable. They decided they weren't going to be accountable to God. They became autonomous. And look what's happened today. It's the same thing. It's played right out. Yeah, it's interesting. I knew we were going to to go there with this subject. We talked a little bit about this before the interview about uh, the first few chapters of Genesis. And um, we have slightly different ways of looking at that. But that tree there, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... I think it's a you know, fantastic image that we have there. That is a turning away from any sense of being accountable to God. And it, it is taking that radical position and say, I'm going to decide for myself what is good, what is true, and put myself in the position of God, as indeed the, in the story of the serpent says, you know, your, your, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. So in that story there, we, we have this indication that that is one of the things about human beings. We do actually want to become our own gods And a lot of what we see here reflects that psychology that we have, that spiritual psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We want to leave God behind. And for me, a lot of it just stems to that fact that people don't want to be accountable to God. They'll do anything they can not to be accountable. People just want to be the God of their own lives. And God doesn't exist just because I want him to exist or because it makes me feel better. Why? Because I need God to get through life. God exists objectively. 
And if that's true, it goes back to truth. Then it's universal. It applies to everybody. It's not just about me. If it's true that God exists, the God of the Bible I'm talking about here, um, not any God that you just want to make up. I'm talking about the God of the Bible. Then it's objectively true. It's universal and it's absolute. Just the same way as science. You know, the, the laws of science, they apply to everybody. You know, we didn't get science because people just decided they were going to be autonomous and just make up their own laws. Or Truth is universal. It applies to everybody. We would not have science if truth was not universal. What we have in society today is pragmatic view of truth, whatever works for me. That's not a true view of truth. The true view of truth is the correspondence theory, that if you your beliefs to be true need to correspond with reality. Reality is not dependent on your thoughts about it. Reality is independent of your thoughts about it. To have a true belief, your thoughts have to line up with reality, not just what you want to believe. So, for example, if God exists and I believe he doesn't, well, then my beliefs were wrong, no matter how sincerely I hold them. If God exists and I say, yes, I do believe he exists, then those beliefs are true because they correspond with reality. And that's what people want to just say, well, my beliefs are my beliefs, my truth is my truth. No, that's not how it works. It's not truth then. The, you know, that's just a matter of opinion. Well, I'm talking about logical truth. Logical truth is universal. It applies to everybody. And it's amazing, really. You know, if we were to go back several generations, we wouldn't be having that discussion at all. No. Because everybody, whether they believed in God or not, would agree that truth is true. <laughs> um, and yet, both you and Francis Schaeffer in this sort of modern stroke postmodern era now are talking about true truth yes actually having to define what you mean when you use the word truth exactly so something has definitely changed and as i said in a few moments we're going to trace through just some of the strands of how that has happened um before we get to there there's another thing i wanted to bring up which is you would think perhaps that christians would be very resistant to this political correctness this way of thinking of a different kind of truth. Surely Christians believe in true truth, and so they would resist this. And yet you say in the book, and I think this is very important for people to take on board, is that you say that there are actually a lot more Christians, because you're talking about the US, but I think it's quite true about here as well. Many people who claim to be Christian are actually nominal Christians, many more than we realize. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah. A nominal Christian is someone who is a Christian in name only. God is completely absent from their lives. God would only, only comes out for these people when there's a personal tragedy, something like 9-11 happens. I mean, there was banners around here, you know, on billboards, pancake houses, everything, you know, oh, in God we trust. And then as soon as the crisis, you know, as Bush said, we'll just go back shopping. Two weeks later, all the billboards are taken down, all the banners come down. Two, three weeks later, the crisis is over and everybody gets back in their autonomous lives and just lives, you know, again, as if God doesn't exist. Mm. I call it practical atheism. You have a philosophical atheist can give you reasons that they believe um, God doesn't exist. That's a philosophical atheist. A practical atheist, which I think comprises a larger and larger portion of our culture over here and yours, is someone who on the practical everyday level lives as if God doesn't exist. They live just like atheists. Okay, they might not know that, but they live just as if God doesn't exist. They don't yes. give God a lick of thought in any of the important decisions, non-important decisions, their daily lives, unless a tragedy comes along. And then, you know, then they'll pull them off the shelf, 
you know, pray, and then as soon as the tragedy resolves itself, mm. back on the shelf, God goes. But you extend that to a, a broader collection of people who call themselves Christian than I would have anticipated. I mean, certainly you talk about you talk quite a bit about civic religion, which is very interesting in the U.S. Civic religion here in the U.K. as well. So there'll be a lot of people here, for example, who you know, if you ask them, "Or oh, what religion are you?" they would put down on their form that they're filling in, they'd say C of E, Church of England, <laughs> um, and yet you know they might only occasionally okay. go, perhaps at Easter or Christmas or something like that. But there's this other dimension that you talk about many people who are perhaps regularly going to church and they would say i'm an evangelical christian and they'd be quite vociferous about that but actually there's a lot about the way they live their lives that is verging on this practical atheism as well that you've been talking about i found that quite a disturbing thought that maybe a lot of people who i thought would oh yeah definitely they're they're christians maybe they're not well, I'll even say this. I mean, I think a lot of these people are Christians. The problem of it is they're starting to accommodate culture. They're starting to believe what the culture believes. And again, it goes back to a notion of truth. For example, like 53% of evangelicals think there's no such thing as absolute truth. I mean, that is amazing. I mean, this is the death knell of Christianity. 53% of evangelicals think there's no such thing as absolute truth. What do you believe then? What can you believe? Um, that, that probably goes to your notion of that you have to question, are, do these people actually understand anything about truth or are they really Christians? Yes. I mean, you, but, you have to question that. I, I yeah. believe it doesn't necessarily mean that. I mean, it could mean that they've somehow managed to compartmentalize their minds in a way yes, that they don't understand. Exactly. But nevertheless, it does right. raise the question. If they are thinking rationally, it does raise the question. well, heavens, who are they really? Yeah, exactly. Right. 50% don't believe Satan exists now. 33% believe Jesus sinned while he was on the earth. Only 43% now believe the Bible is accurate and all that it teaches. Uh, so we have a, an erosion of biblical authority. And then 40% of born-again Christians believe Muslims and Christians worship the same God. So there's no difference. <laughs> yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no yeah. difference. Well, see, again, all, see all, all the same. Yes, yeah. but see how this mm. all plays together? See, it's, it's, that, mm. it's that politically correct pluralism. Okay. Yeah. You see, this is mm. part of the, that's just a statistic, but it backs up my thesis about the fruit of secularization because it's basically saying, oh, see, you know, all roads lead to God. You know, there's really not that much differences and, and this and that. And the next thing, Barner concluded, I mean, over here, we are a nation of biblical illiterates. This is the big thing. Christianity is not being passed down to the generations behind us. That is the huge problem. That is probably the biggest problem. Yes, you, you bring up Peter Berger's amazing insight to this notion of the plausibility structure, which I think is so important for people to grasp this notion that this is the this sort of interconnected web of ideas in, in the culture. That web of, of ideas renders beliefs plausible or implausible. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether those beliefs are true or false. It's just that that web of ideas no. gives a certain credence or lack of credence to any particular idea that comes along. And we've allowed this modernism stroke postmodernism we've been talking about to become so much part of the culture in general, but also within Christianity as well, that some of the ideas of Christianity are not fitting with that plausibility structure anymore. But that's not to say those ideas are false. It just means they're ill-fitting. It's because we've allowed this accommodation to take place to these false ideas. And then it becomes extremely difficult for us to pass down the teachings of Christ and the apostles to the next generation, because that generation is embedded in this web of contradictory ideas. They think, well, this isn't plausible. 
And so somehow we've got to break that web of ideas. We've got to deconstruct that web of ideas so that the next generation can actually see, oh, oh, actually, Christianity is really an option that I can take seriously, intellectually. And of course, this is one of the things that, that, that Bill Craig talks about all the time, isn't it? That we've got, we've got to make sure that people can see that Christianity is an intellectual option, not just a, a faith option in some sort of woolly sense, but no, actually, it's a worldview that really does make sense. Yes. Do you think there's any hope that we're going to be able to break this plausibility structure problem that's before us? Well, by doing your podcast, you're doing the best you can. Other people are trying to do the best they can. We can try. Do I really think it's mm. going to happen? No, I don't. Look, once you lose that, you know, like in our society, and I'm sure it's the same in your society too, where Christianity is not the default worldview anymore. There's a quote in there that I have, by, I think it was uh, Novak, who said that the first generation, you know, you still have some of Christianity left. And then every generation after that, you know, you don't really feel the effects of it until later on, you know, maybe three or four generations. I think I found it here. It says, it's usually the case that the first generation to reject religion continues to live from the internal capital they have inherited from belief in its inward practices. However, they have now made themselves incapable of passing on their inner beliefs and practices to their children. Thus, their children grow up in an entirely different situation, and even more so do the children of their children. In this way, the loss of belief is not generally felt throughout society for at least three or possibly four generations. So um, what I said was, you know, we should expect Christianity would have lost much of its cultural authority now that we are two generations, so we move from the countercultural revolution, and this is what we're seeing. Let me quote you another one from uh, Wells. He says, outside is a world that ignores what is most important to Christians and that is in fact now organizing itself on the basis of that rejection. Within the larger society, secularism seems natural because its context gives it plausibility. So again, there's that plausibility structure. To continue with the quote though, he says, within that same society, Christians' faith seems odd. The bias of our experience in the modern world tilts heavily against a perception that Christian faith is true and equally heavily, heavily toward a perception that secularism is true. Yeah, and I think it's important to stress again that this has got nothing to do with whether things are true or not. This is just how things are perceived to be. So there doesn't have to be any particular argument that's brought up. So, for example, with my, my daughter, who we're bringing up, she might be heavily influenced by the spirit of the age, as it were, and find Christianity implausible. But that might not be because she has brought up any questions inside her mind. Well, how can God be this? And how can God do that? And how can I reconcile this, the state of the world with the existence of God? It's a, none of those questions need to pass her mind at all. She could just be imbibing the spirit of the age, the way the people think around her. And just because of that, what is true can seem to be implausible. Yes. And that's a very worrying thought indeed. I think what we need to do is just like what we just tried to do here a few minutes ago, is you got to explain what truth is. And then most of the mm. time, things that aren't true, you can show that they're incoherent right off the bat or that they don't fit the facts of experience. I guess that's it. There's like, I would say there's three criteria for truth. You know, are they coherent? Does it contradict itself or other known truths? Does it fit the facts of experience, you know, in a comprehensive manner? That, that's kind of where science would say come up. I mean, you look at the empirical realm around you and you say, all right, does this fit the facts of experience? And the third thing is, is it existentially viable? Is it something, what you believe, is it something that you can live out consistently without hypocrisy? And maybe we can convey, you know, what actually truth is, we would have a fighting chance. Because really, to me, everything stems back to 
if people can get away with saying, well, it doesn't matter whether truth, it's all relative, or in the case of religion, all roads lead to God, if people can get away with believing that, you're never going to convince them of what you believe is true. You've got to get them on a notion of what actually truth is, and truth is what corresponds with reality. And we're not going to talk about this very much in this particular interview because we're going to save it for, for the next one but i do think we need to mention where we're sort of heading with this because towards the end of the book you talk about the new world order which we've spent quite a lot of time talking about on this podcast and one of the things you say is that this distorted notion of truth this radical political correctness accommodated by the church indeed in many ways this makes people both inside and outside of the church pray to this new world order that is indeed shaping up in front of our eyes. Could you explain how this makes us so vulnerable to what is clearly beginning to happen? Well, I came across a quote the other night, and it wasn't in my book, it was, um, but it said, if you don't have a shared value system, you are going to be open to totalitarianism. And I thought, I wish I would have put that in my book. I'm, I probably touched on it. If you don't have – and see, this is the thing. Like, it goes back to autonomy. Everybody's allowed to themselves. Everybody's got their own belief system. You have no more shared value system. And things start to go wrong. Like, you can see they are. I mean, we are heading for some type of economic collapse here. Mm. They're probably going to be able to save it one more time. Um, maybe they'll have to come out with a some type of one-world currency or something. But if you head in that direction and things start to collapse, you are making yourself vulnerable to totalitarianism because you're going to be looking for a savior – and that's really dangerous. So when you say savior, you mean just some system to save you from your predicament? You, obviously, you don't mean salvation in a, a spiritual sense. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. No, I mean a political savior. Right. That's right. a good point. So whether it's true or not, it's just something that's going to rescue you out of your situation, and you don't care whether it's true or not, because it, there is no truth. It's just something that's going to help you. Exactly. So this mm. fellow was a Russian KGB agent named Bezmenov, and basically he said that the Russians had um, like a four-stage what they would try to accomplish to demoralize society. So they had a demoralization phase um, where the media shapes public opinion and the entertainment industry, um, ridicule religion, moral relativism. The country starts to collapse, you know, and rot from the inside out. And then you have a destabilization uh, stage. Uh, the country's destabilized. See, then it's ripe for a crisis. So, for example, like 9-11, which I heard you talk about in one of your interviews, you know, you can have a false flag. It doesn't matter whether it's legit or it's a false flag crisis. Mm. You, once you have that crisis, which is what these global elites are trying for, by the way, um, because then they can just, again, your savior comes in and they can have some type of uh, the new world order mm. uh, savior come in and try to implement whatever they want to against the, the sheeple. That's how they do it. They do it through a crisis. Your traditional social structures collapse. Society can no longer function productively. So, again, this could be something that's engineered like a pandemic, a civil war, nuclear strike, or, you know, whatever. But people then, they look for a savior. They're going to be in such a tizzy. Mm. So government can declare martial law. You know, all these bad things are happening. So people, they'll accept anything at that point, just as long as they can have order. Um, and that's the danger of where if we don't get back to a Christian worldview where we know what is true and get God back in our country and in our lives, we are setting ourselves up for this type of situation here with these – because these globalists do not have our best interests in mind. They consider us unwashed masses. They consider us cattle. You know, They want to eliminate 85 to 90 percent of the population. 
So that's just a fact. I, I noticed that you brought that statistic up a few times. Is that from the global biodiversity assessment? The 85 to 90%? Yeah. I've got that from a couple of sources. I remember, I think Jacques Gusteau was even one that said, I'm not sure if he brought up the 85 to 90%. Right. Okay. But no, that's just pretty standard. Yeah, we actually have, we've know. looked at that issue. I just wonder what, which particular reference you had in mind with that. We have looked at that issue with a, a number of guests, actually, and it does seem pretty clear that there is a, a tradition amongst of certain elites that that would be a pretty good idea to get rid of most people and the world would be a better place if uh, we could control a, a fewer, better select group of people so yeah oh but yeah no, all, all, all that was in inverted commas so let me just uh, make it quite clear for anybody who hasn't listened to the mind read before <laughs> yeah well these guys they, they're trying for a, a one world government you and, know? and with all this there is this notion isn't there that somehow government is always benign we seem to have been indoctrinated for such a long time with the view that our government not necessarily oh, yeah. other places of course that's a different matter <laughs> but our government it's always well you know they're incompetent yeah. and you know, they do things wrong at certain times, but basically they have our good at heart and it's dangerous stuff. And certainly without this, you know, I think without this Christian view of the apocalypse, of course, goes back to your title, there isn't that warning. Whereas with this Christian view of the end of the age, of course, with the one world system that's there with the arrival of the Antichrist, we do have that warning there that actually ultimately government is certainly not going to be the answer to all our problems. It's something to be fearful of. So if things are actually moving in that direction, the Christian is in a position there to realise the danger of that, unless we have accommodated to the thought forms around us and think, yeah, well, I'm not going to take all that sort of thing seriously because that's just biblical fundamentalism. And then we are in, in danger there. Um, so actually, this leads me to, I don't know whether we have time to do this in this particular interview, but I did want to, as I've said a couple of times, look at some of those philosophical and theological trends that have taken place since the Enlightenment and up to the latter part of the 20th century, so that we can see how certain philosophical ideas have then been accommodated to by theologians. Certain anti-Christian, anti-God ideas have crept into the church and changed the way that people have thought and therefore made us less able to see the signs of the times. Um, I don't know whether you feel that perhaps we've covered an awful lot so far with this interview. Perhaps we should leave that till next time. Would that be okay? Yeah, sure, that's fine. Yeah, that would be great, because there's actually a, a lot to go into with that. So I'm wondering whether this might shape up to being three interviews. <laughs> I did say to you, maybe we might do a couple. Would that be okay to do three? Do you reckon we could do that? That's okay. Yeah. That's fine. No problem. Wonderful. Be happy well, it's to. Absolutely fascinating. This, this, you've pushed my button with all the things you're talking about in this book, and I do reiterate that it is an excellent book. I do encourage people to get a copy. Is there... Um, any way in which people can get hold of it? I mean, is, does it have to be through Amazon? Is, is there any alternative way of doing that? Um, you could probably, you have Barnes & Noble over there or your local bookstores. You, I think you can probably order it, but okay. Amazon probably is the easiest way to, to get a hold of it. You have an Amazon UK over there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah you can probably, you can get it other ways, but Amazon is probably the easiest way. You can get either the trade paperback version or the Kindle version. If you get the Kindle um, I think it's really relatively cheap. I think it's under under five pounds over there, isn't it? Do you know what I'm actually sure? Because yeah. you sent me a copy yourself. Yeah. I'm quite sure that it is relatively inexpensive. And I really do think that it is really, folks, it is worth reading this book because there's so much in here that doesn't just 
tell you facts, but it sparks ideas and important ideas that you can wrestle with. And as I said before, not in an overly academic way, but it's clear that there's a lot of academic reading and thought that's gone into the preparation of this. So thanks very much for writing it and uh, thanks for coming on the show. And I look uh, forward to speaking to you again for part two. Thank you for having me on, Julian. I appreciate it. Thank you.